All right, we're reading this morning from Jeremiah chapter 30 and verses 1 through 17. Jeremiah 30, verse 1, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds. And strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Fear not, O Jacob my servant, declares the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only you I will not destroy completely. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable and your injury Is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable, because your iniquity is great. And your sins are numerous. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you will be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, will go into captivity. And those who plunder you will be for plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health and I will heal you of your wounds declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying, it is Zion. No one cares for her. Loving Father, we pray that you would make us very attentive this morning as you you tell us about the incurable wound of your judgment against us because of our relentless sin. And as you tell us, Father, about the one and only cure for that wound. We ask You, Father, to make us hear, make us humble, make us respond. In Jesus' precious name, Amen. 
I want you to imagine uh, that you're in the midst of a pitched battle against a fierce enemy very long ago. You see enemy troops getting closer and closer and they're hurling spears and firing arrows in your direction. And suddenly your best friend who's been fighting the battle right alongside you falls to the ground. And you turn to him and, and you stoop down to tend to him and you see that he's, he's been pierced through with a spear right through his abdomen. And as you look into his eyes, you can see that he has only minutes to live if that long. You see the life fading from his eyes. And then, all of a sudden, he stands right up. And, and you look in, there, in the spear that had so grievously injured him is, is nowhere to be found. And he, he looks like he's never felt better in his whole life. What do you call that? It's interesting that even unbelievers tend to call that a miracle. Would you slap him on the back and say, nice work, man, I'm really impressed with you. That wouldn't make much sense, would it? Because he had absolutely no way to heal himself from such a grievous wound. Our passage this morning is about God's miraculous healing of our grievous wound. And it's the wound that he caused. Jeremiah chapter 30 begins with God's commission to Jeremiah to, quote, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. And then the next verse starts with the words, For behold, days are coming when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Write these words in a book. Now, back in chapter 25, verse 13, God referred to all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. Against all the nations. He was talking about Jeremiah's record of God's judgments. But now God commands Jeremiah to write words of hope. Chapters 30 to 33 in this book have been called Jeremiah's Book of Consolation or Jeremiah's book of hope. They stand out because of one very noticeable difference between these chapters and most of the other chapters in the book of Jeremiah. By and large, the other chapters place a heavy emphasis on judgment. And they may have passing brief references to God's intent to restore. But in chapters 30 to 33, it's the other way around. God still speaks of judgment in these chapters, especially in this one, chapter 30. But, but the heart of these four chapters is God's promise of a wonderful restoration that He will bring about after, after He judges His people. In verse 3, God says, For behold, days are coming when I will restore the fortunes of My people Israel and Judah. And will bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers and they shall possess it. As you trace what God says about this restoration in, the, in these four chapters, you will find that there are three essential elements to the promise. The first is restoration to the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The second is restoration of Israel and Judah together. A reuniting of God's people to gather them together and bring them back. And the third is the restoration of blessedness 
of the blessings of provision and protection, but much more importantly, the blessing of fellowship, of restored relationship between His people and Himself. Those three parts to God's promised restoration started in the garden before they were corrupted. And now in God's plan of redemption, those three parts of God's promise of restoration keep showing up. The land, which is the place in which God will dwell together with His redeemed. The people, which originally was the promise of a seed of of descendants that would come from Abraham. And now it's the promise of a people gathered and reunited and brought together. And then third, the promise of blessing. And the blessing, the heart of the blessing, is to be with God. It's relationship with God. You'll see that all over the Bible from beginning to end. In verses 4-7, through God turns our attention for a moment back to the judgment that must come before the promised restoration. He speaks of an exceedingly painful judgment upon both Israel and Judah. And in verse 5, he says, I heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. You remember in earlier chapters, the prophets, the false prophets were saying, peace, peace. God said there is no peace. In verse 6 of chapter 30, he says that the situation of Israel and Judah had become as if a man had been overcome by the pains of childbirth. Now, there's no man in the room who knows what the pains of childbirth are like except secondhand. But God is describing that kind of pain. He says, ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? And then in verse 7, he says, alas, for that day, that day of judgment is great. It's fascinating to me that this morning in our worship we had discussion about the word great and how that word has been trivialized. And we even had discussion about the fact that the word great can be good and it can also be bad. Guys, when he says, he says, that day is great, he's talking about great in the worst possible way. Great in terror. Great in distress. He uses the word great twice later in this passage in reference to the sin that brought about this great judgment. He says there is none like it. There's no judgment like this. He says it's a judgment so severe that it stands apart from all earthly judgments that have been or that will be. He calls it the time of Jacob's distress. If you've ever heard the phrase, Jacob's trouble, it's this verse, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, that that phrase comes from. About 500 years later in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks in very similar terms of a judgment that's so severe that it stands apart from all other earthly judgments. He calls it the time of great tribulation. He says it's a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. 
Now, just at face value, if Jeremiah is talking about a judgment that is worse than anything that ever occurred or ever will occur, and Jesus is talking about a judgment that's worse than any that has ever occurred or will occur, do you think maybe they're talking about the same judgment? And Jesus says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect. Please remember that phrase. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The last thing that God says about the time of great distress here in Jeremiah verse 7 is, but he, Jacob, will be saved from it. It will be unlike any other judgment the earth has ever seen, but Jacob will be saved from it. Yet Jacob is the object of it. Jacob is the one being judged, but he'll be saved from the judgment. In verses 8-10, through God reveals what that coming salvation of Jacob will look like. He says, It shall come about on that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke. He's talking about the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar in the near term. I will break his yoke from off their neck and tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. First yoke he would remove in the near term fulfillment of this prophecy was the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That had already been a big topic in the previous chapters. But in the same sentence, God also declares that He will remove the yokes of every king and of every kingdom that would ever oppress His people. In chapter 28, we saw that a false prophet named Hananiah told the Judahites that their subjection under King Nebuchadnezzar would end within just two years. But God took the life of that false prophet in two months. And then He declared again through Jeremiah that the subjection of Judah under the tyrannical rule of King Nebuchadnezzar would not last two years. It would last 70 years, just as He had already told them in chapter 25. Now, God comes back to the marvelous promise of deliverance and blessing. And He says, When the deliverance comes, strangers will no longer make His people their slaves. And instead, instead, verse 9, they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss the fact that in the Bible, there is no such thing as being subject to no one. The liberation that God promises is not freedom from subjection to any king. It's freedom from subjection to any king but Him. If you're looking for a belief system that promises you personal sovereignty over your own life, the Bible is the wrong place to look. The Word of the One who made you is the wrong place to look. In the restoration that God promises, His people shall, quote, serve Yahweh their God and David their king. Now, King David had already been dead for 400 years. Yet over and over in the prophetic books of the Old Testament after David's death, God promises Israel and Judah that they will once again live under the reign of David. And He will reign in righteousness and justice forever. Not just over Israel, but over the whole earth. The books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, 
and the Psalms all explicitly, explicitly speak of the coming of a righteous king who will rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom in perfect righteousness and justice from then on and forevermore. The king, beloved, the king that the whole Bible talks about is Jesus from cover to cover. And please don't miss the fact that throughout the Old Testament, God's promise of restoration is given not only to Judah, the southern tribes that descended from Jacob, but to Israel, the northern tribes that descended from Jacob. In verse 10 of Jeremiah 30, God says, Jacob shall return and shall be quiet and at ease and no one shall make him afraid. Jacob was the father of all 12 tribes that descended from him. The tribes of a long divided people. He was father of both the house of Judah in the south and the house of Israel in the north. And throughout the book of hope in chapters 30 to 33 of Jeremiah, God refers to those whom he is promising to restore. He refers to them as Jacob or he refers to them as Israel and Judah. Those are equivalent. Jacob is Israel and Judah. That's who he's going to restore. Now that's super important, guys, for understanding what God is promising here because up to this point, and I mean this point, 2,500 years after these prophecies were given, the northern tribes that descended from Jacob and that were taken away into captivity to Assyria have never been back in the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The southern tribes, the house of Judah, were released from captivity in Babylon after 70 years. Many of them chose to stay there for a good time. But God released them under King Cyrus. And the last chapter of Second Chronicles and all of Ezra and Nehemiah and the narrative portions of Haggai and Zechariah all talk about that return to the land. Judah coming back from Babylon and rebuilding in Jerusalem. That return was a partial near-term fulfillment of these prophecies, but it absolutely was not a complete fulfillment of these prophecies. Because the northern first, the northern tribes have never been back. And since Solomon, no king in the line of David has ruled over both Israel and Judah. They were divided from that point forward. And since the reign of Solomon, Israel and Judah have never lived in the land as one united people. No king has ruled over Israel and Judah on the throne of David since Solomon. And yet God keeps promising that long after both David and Solomon are dead. And that means that God's not finished fulfilling these promises. Whether you believe that the thousand-year reign of Jesus described in Revelation 20 is literal, as I do, or figurative, the end point of God's plan of redemption and the object of our living hope is crystal clear. A day is coming when God will gather His people together from the grave and from the whole face of the earth and He will bring them ultimately into the land that He has always 
always intended to dwell with them. And God's long-promised Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, will rule on the throne of David over all the nations in perfect righteousness and justice from then on and forevermore. He will be our God and we will be His people and He will dwell right in our midst. Beloved, that's our hope. That, is, that hope is the anchor of our souls every single day. We've talked a lot about how, how we as the children of God deal with the infirmity and the struggles and the judgments that come to us from the hand of God during this life. And really, if we talk about God's work to conform us to Christ, He's using all of that. How do we deal with those things day by day? How do we come to see those things as momentary light affliction? <laughs> Very simple, 2 Corinthians four seventeen, By comparing them with the eternal weight of glory that is being laid up for us in the presence of our God and Savior. If you know that something that good is coming, you can get through anything now. And not just get through it, but be an overcomer. That is the glorious hope of every child of God, Jew and Gentile, That is the anchor of our souls. In verse 11, uh, I will say, verse 11 is, I believe, one of the most eye-opening verses in the whole Bible when it comes to understanding why things are the way they are here and now. In verse 11 of Jeremiah 30, God inseparably connects His judgment against His people to His plan to redeem them, to redeem us. And I want you to listen carefully as I read a couple of verses here again. For I am with you, declares really one verse, verse 11. I am with you, declares Yahweh, to save you. He's talking to to the descendants of Jacob. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only you, and by the way, that's emphatic in the Hebrew. It's the beginning of the sentence and it's explicit instead of implied in the verb. Only you... I will not destroy completely. But I will chasten you justly and I will by no means leave you unpunished. Literally, I will certainly not clear you. God's saying, I won't acquit you without judgment. The eternal judgment falls upon Christ for the elect of God. And in the near term, there's a corrective judgment. And you don't, you don't get to the end point without either of those. Without both of those, I will certainly not clear you. God does not turn a blind eye to sin. Now the word chasten, he says, only you, he says, I'll destroy the nations, only you, I will not destroy completely, but I will chasten you justly. The word chasten is super important. It's the word that is very often, in fact, most often in the the Old Testament translated, discipline. I will discipline you. Now, let me ask you a question. What's the point of discipline? Is it to destroy? Is it to condemn? Brothers and sisters, if we are going to understand the purpose of God's judgment in the lives of His His elect, we have to understand this. I want you to listen carefully as I read a New Testament passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a passage about the Lord's Supper. 
fact, the first part of the passage is very familiar to us. We cite it often on Sunday mornings as we partake of the Lord's Supper. But in verses 29 to 32 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is warning the church very sternly of a judgment that was already being dispensed by God upon some believers because they were trivializing the beautiful observance, the sacred observance of and remembrance of the Lord's Supper. In fact, they were treating it as an opportunity for gluttony and drunkenness. Paul writes this, he says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. And now, please listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians 11.32, but when we are judged, when we, the people of God, are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. We are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul's making the same distinction that we find in Jeremiah 30 between two very different outcomes to God's work of judgment. Jeremiah tells us that His judgment of the world destroys, but His judgment of His people disciplines. Paul tells us that God's judgment of the world condemns, but His judgment of His people protects from condemnation. Now would you say that's a different outcome? In one case, God's judgment condemns, and in the other case, God's judgment protects from condemnation. There are too many Christians living their lives Wondering where they stand with God when they have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their one and only Savior. When they know that they were lost and dead in their sins and they had nothing to offer to God and that Jesus is the only payment for their sin. And they're still trying to figure out if they stand righteous in the eyes of God because they experience the chastising work of God in their lives at different points. It's all discipline. Do you discipline your kids only when you're angry with them? I mean, do do you discipline them in the sense of, of training them up only when you're angry with them? God is training up His people all the time, every day. He is at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. He is a perfect Heavenly Father. And His discipline toward His children does not destroy. It disciplines. It does not condemn. It protects from condemnation. Now, this is also important. His judgment against the world may look exactly the same as His judgment against His people. It may take the same form. Paul says, for this reason some among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And the word sleep means they die. He's saying God had already judged some of these believers from Corinth to the point of physical death because they were trivializing the Lord's Supper and they wouldn't get the they wouldn't respond to the correction. But again, the explicit reason that God had taken the physical lives of those believers was in order that they may not be condemned along with the world. Is that 
good or bad? Is that gracious or ungracious? It's gracious. Beyond measure. This is vitally important, brothers and sisters. When a child of God steps onto the path that leads to death, the end of that path, the end of that path is death. Eternal separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. The direction that that believer is heading is deathward. But God will never possibly let that child of His reach the end of that path, even if it means that He has to take His physical life. God's faithful fatherly discipline is both corrective and protective. Is that gracious or ungracious? Is that how you are prone to interpret the discipline that you experience from the hand of God? Do you see it as gracious? In order for the corrective judgment to be effective, which it always is because God's a perfect Father, it may take the form of weakness, of illness, or even of physical death. And it's always gracious. As I said last week, that does not mean that if you're, if you're dealing with an illness right now, that that illness is a judgment from God for a specific sin. Please don't think that that's what I'm saying. And I'll say this, I didn't say this last time, but I've been thinking about this a lot and looking at, looking at it in the Bible. When a judgment recorded in the Bible was intended by God to correct a specific sin, God was never shy about pointing out the connection between the sin and the judgment. Why do we think He would be with us? He certainly wasn't shy about pointing out the, the connection between the sin and the judgment in the book of Jeremiah. He spent chapters indicting them before he started talking about the nature of the judgment that would come. He told him exactly why he was doing what he was doing. See, guys, it is not God's pattern to leave his people guessing when he's correcting specific sins. So trust him with that. Don't trust you with that. Trust him with that. And I take you again back to Psalm, the last two verses of Psalm 139 where David prays to God and he says, Lord, You seek me and know my heart. You try me and know my anxious thought and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. He's not taking it upon Himself to smoke out all the sin. He's putting it on God. It's not introspection. It's theospection. We can trust God to do this. He's been doing this for a really long time with His people. He's perfectly able to do it with you. In verses 12 to 17, God speaks of Israel's incurable wound. It's not the sin that He's calling the wound, although there are places in the Bible that that do equate that, the sin, sin of men with a wound. He's talking about the judgment for the sin. He's talking about the painful judgment that He, God, was already pouring out on His people for all the reasons He had already spelled out over and over in this book. And He says in every way possible that that wound is beyond fixing. Listen again to verses 12-14 to of chapter 30. Thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable and your injury is severe. There is no one to plead your cause. There is 
no healing for your sore. There is no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. (laughs) Is there any way God could have been clearer about His people's helplessness to recover from the wound that He had inflicted on them because of their sin? I, I can't imagine what words would be clearer. The first thing that we need to see in verses 12 to 17 is that the wound God's talking about is incurable. The second thing we need to see in those verses is that God is the one who caused it. He wounded His people with, quote, the wound of an enemy. Let me make sure that we're hearing that. He wounded His people with the wound of an enemy. And when God wounds you, you stay wounded until He heals you. God has to deliver you from Himself. In chapter 28, we talked about this, the false prophet Hananiah had treated Judah's exile as if it was something that just sort of happened, something that snuck by God. And that God never intended. And that God was going to fix in short order. But God put Hananiah in his place for the very short remainder of his life (laughs) through his faithful prophet Jeremiah. And just before God told Hananiah he was going to die in that same year, He also told him with crystal clarity that it was He, Yahweh, who had put Judah and all the nations under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. It was not someone else. It was, it was God. The exile of most of the Judahites to Babylon and the subjection of the Jews who still remained in Jerusalem under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar was all entirely by God's doing and no one else's. The wound is incurable. The wound is caused by God. And third, the people that God had wounded with the wound of an enemy were the same people He promised to restore to Himself and to the land. If you've been wrestling with whether the warnings in the book of Jeremiah are talking to unbelievers or believers, please pay very close attention to this one undeniable fact. And and if you think there's cause to deny it, come see me. The people of Israel and Judah whom God had wounded with the wound of an enemy by His own declaration in verse 14 are the same people that He now promises to restore to Himself and to the land. So whether they were believers or unbelievers at the time they heard these words, the people that God is addressing are His elect. They are people whom He intends to redeem and to bring into that glorious city the new heavens and the new earth. As I've said before, I believe strongly that the whole Bible is written to God's elect. It often speaks about the non-elect, but I'm convinced that it speaks to the elect. To those whose names God recorded in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Revelation talks about that book in four separate passages. As Jeremiah was writing these words, God was already in the process of executing this painful judgment against His own people. A judgment that, by the way, had been very long in coming. I've asked you before to go check out Deuteronomy 28 and the beginning of Deuteronomy. Well, all of Deuteronomy 30, especially the beginning. If you haven't done that, 
I really encourage you, go home and do that this week and compare what you see there with what we see going on here. Because God prophesied, God prophesied the exile and the horrific siege of the city of Jerusalem a thousand years before they happened. And He did so in vivid detail. Through Moses in Deuteronomy 28 and 30, And when you get to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, you find out that the way God's people enter into into blessedness again is by going through the judgment. Only God could heal Israel's incurable wound and He promised to do exactly that right here in Jeremiah chapter 30, both in the beginning verses and now in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, Therefore all who devour you will be devoured, all your adversaries, every one of them will go away into captivity. For those, and those who plunder you will be for plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health and I will heal you of your wounds. You know those incurable wounds? I will heal you, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast saying it is Zion and no one cares for her. It is Zion and no one cares for her. That's what the nations were saying. That has never been true of God's covenant people. That will never be true of those whom God has decreed to make the objects of His grace, not even when He has inflicted upon them an incurable wound. That's what Paul says The Apostle Paul says of his beloved Israelites at the end of Romans chapter 11. He's talking to Gentile believers from the city of Rome and he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and thus all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's God's plan for the descendants of Jacob. I don't mean all of them any more than I mean all Gentiles. But those whose names God has written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, He's going to save. And then he says, from the standpoint of the Gospel, those Jews are enemies for your sakes, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They can't be undone. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that that because of the mercy shown to you, they also might now be shown mercy. For God has shut up, locked up, all in disobedience that He might show mercy to all. Exactly how that promise of God to save all Israel will play out in the last days, I simply do not know. And I'm pretty sure Paul did not know. Because in the very next verse, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable 
are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. God judges His children fiercely to save His children fully. God's judgments against His elect are not to destroy. They are to protect and restore. They are to conform us to Christ. God's judgment against His elect may be fierce when that's what's necessary to turn our hearts to Him or back to Him. But those judgments are always gracious in both purpose and outcome. We'll never understand or respond rightly to God's painful corrective discipline in our lives if we don't let God finish His own story. If we don't let Him tell us the plans that He has for us. Plans for well-being and not for calamity to give us a future and a hope. And that hope is eternal relationship with Him in the place that He has prepared for us together with each other. If we allow His dealings with His covenant people in the Old Testament to inform His words to His covenant people in the New Testament, I believe it not only explains some really difficult New Testament passages, but it also reveals even greater unity to His Word than we might have expected to find. I'm thinking of several New Testament passages But I'm thinking at the moment especially of warning passages in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 4, Hebrews 10 verses 26 to 31, evangelical scholars have wrestled over and over with the fact that Hebrews 10 talks about those who have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ by whom they were sanctified. When the same writer in the same chapter just before that says that he has sanctified us forever. He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So is he talking about believers or unbelievers? I believe he's talking about elect. And I believe that if you take, I, I don't have time, I don't have time to develop those Hebrews passages now. Maybe we should do that soon. In light of Jeremiah 30. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do is this. Go home and spend some time in Jeremiah 30 and then read Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. And tell me, if what you see in Jeremiah informs and helps you understand perhaps what's going on in Hebrews. I'm not saying you have to agree with me about the Hebrews passages. That's not the point. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is that very much of what we find of God's dealings with us as His covenant people in the New Testament, it follows very, very consistently from what we see of His dealings with His covenant people in the Old Testament. Because he's the same God. My beloved father-in-law said grace is not a dispensation. It's an attribute of God. The wound that comes upon us from God's hand because of our sinful rebellion against him both before we know him and once we know him is an incurable wound. The only one who can cure it is God. That which brings us through the judgment to the other side will never be our resolve. It will never be our cooperation. It is God's work in us that empties us of self and that brings us to utter, absolute dependence on Him to cure what we can never cure. That's as true for us every day of our lives as Christians as it was before we even knew God.
What is not possible with men is possible with God. His work in us, His Word to us, is to bring us to fix our eyes on His promise of miraculous restoration of fellowship with Him together with His people in the place that He has prepared for us. He will finish the good work that He began. He will heal and restore. He will bring our hearts ever back to Himself where we will find every good thing and every perfect gift. Loving Father, teach us to trust You. We have a perfect Heavenly Father. And you, are never, you never stop your marvelous redemptive work to draw our hearts fully to you, to make us fully yours, to make us usefully yours while we remain here and for all eternity. Father, thank you for your grace. We don't deserve any of it. Even when we don't understand it, that doesn't change it. Father, thank you that you are relentlessly faithful to Your covenant promises. The promises that are fulfilled perfectly in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.